Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Amen. And again, good morning. Have you ever had expectations that did not live up to reality? (laughs) There have been countless times, right, where I've looked for something on uh, Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or OfferUp or or one of those things, right? Maybe it's a a used car or a piece of furniture I want to refinish, a a tool or or whatever, right? Only to arrive at the seller's house and find that what they showed me looks totally different (laughs) than the pictures that they posted online. The expectation I had did not meet reality. Or maybe you've been repeatedly told by a friend, right, that this particular restaurant is the best place in town to eat and that this particular dish on the menu was the best thing you could order at the restaurant only to be completely underwhelmed by the food once you ate it. Expectation did not meet reality. Or maybe the new job you took promised increased pay, more vacation days, more flexible hours, only to find out that the job is actually a lot more strict than the one that you just left. Expectations that do not live up to reality. And we all know that life is full, again, of expectations that don't live up to reality. And some of them are more serious than others. But in all reality, and yes, pun intended, in all reality, Palm Sunday is really about expectations that do not live up to reality. We'll be reading and studying the Palm Sunday account, the triumphal entry account, as it's been recorded in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. Uh, If you have your Bibles, would you turn there with me? And I invite you to stand uh, with me this morning as I read God's Word. Again, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, reading in Jesus' name. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your King His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life 
loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here ends the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I thank you for this morning. This is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And Father, now as we look back nearly more than 2,000 years on that first Palm Sunday, those first cries of Hosanna, save us. Lord, we, we cry the same thing. Hosanna, save us. And we greet our crucified and risen Savior King today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are five different truths in this text about Jesus and about his entry into Palm Sunday on that, well, first, his entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. And as we talk about these truths this morning, I hope that you'll see why this day, why Palm Sunday is, is still important. It is so much more than just the, the warm-up for Easter. The first truth to note regarding Jesus and Palm Sunday is this. He came to celebrate the Passover. And Passover, right, is one of those three special pilgrimage feasts for the Jewish nation, right? In Jesus' day, Passover was no small gathering. Conservative estimates guess that there were somewhere between 40 and 200,000 people who came into Jerusalem for Passover, while more inflated estimates put that number at around 2.7 million people. Pilgrims would come from all over the known world, from Africa and Syria, from the Middle East, from Asia Minor. And for the Israelites, Passover was a celebration of remembrance. At Passover, the Jews looked back on the time when the, when the Lord God miraculously delivered them from Egypt, from their slavery in Egypt. And specifically, Passover was a remembrance of the final of the ten plagues that God had done in order to free his people. The Lord had, one by one, demonstrated his power and his authority over the gods, over the deities of Egypt. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let God's people go. And so God sent one final plague, the angel of death, to kill every firstborn male. Only those who had their homes and their doorposts covered with the blood of the lamb, of the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb painted on their doorposts, would be passed over by the angel of death. And so each year, as, as the Jews gathered to eat that Passover meal, they would remember that time that the lamb had died instead of us. And for Jesus, celebrating the Passover was nothing new. He had been doing it his entire life. But this year, this time, was a little bit different for him. Uh, We're told in John chapter 11, verses 53 and 54, that Jesus had been hiding out a while because of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. They had begun to put plots in order to arrest him and to kill him. So he went out into the wilderness with his disciples to avoid being spotted and captured. And now, as he came into Jerusalem on that Sunday before Passover, he came not only to the Passover, yes, but he also came out of hiding, if you will. The crowds who hadn't seen him in a while went into a frenzy now at his return. And this leads us to our next important truth in this text that we should take notice of. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he came to be Israel's king. And this is what the people had expected, had hoped 
for a while. They had hoped, they had expected that Jesus would be their Messiah, their anointed one, their conquering king, their savior. They had hoped that he would become a strong political ruler and a military general who would retake David's throne and overthrow the Romans, setting up once and for all a theocratic Jewish nation. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds waved palm branches at him, right? Hence, Palm Sunday. And this morning, as at every Palm Sunday service, right, the the kids walk into the sanctuary singing Hosanna, those sorts of things. Have you ever wondered why we do that today? Well, we obviously do it, right, because of Jesus and that first (laughs) celebration of Passover, right? But why did they do that? Why did they wave palm branches nearly 2,000 years ago? Have you ever wondered? It turns out there's some important significance behind palm branches, Uh, For Israel, the palm tree had become kind of a national symbol, sort of like the eagle or the stars and stripes for us today. They would take the palm branch and they would engrave it on their coins. They would uh, put it on their buildings. They would draw it on their documents. And this national symbol had also become their symbol of victory. They would wave it in celebration as heroes returned from battle victorious. And in Jewish history, for, for example, there's a guy named Simon Maccabeus. And in 142 B.C., he successfully drove out the Romans and purified the temple. And when he returned, he was greeted with a hero's welcome by an adoring nation who waved palm branches at their new king. And so that Sunday of Passover, the Jews greeted the returning Jesus with a hero's welcome, one fit for a king. And as Jesus is riding by, they shout out to their hero. They cry out, Hosanna. And Hosanna is a Hebrew word literally meaning, save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Hosanna. And we came across that word already in our, in our morning worship service. We, we did a couple of times, once as we sang it, right? But also we read it in our call to worship in Psalm 118. We read this, save us, we pray, O Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those verses, those words should sound familiar, right? Save us, we pray. Hosanna. The crowd is quoting scripture. They're quoting Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was seen as a messianic psalm, meaning that it pointed forward to the Messiah, to the Christ. And it was seen as a messianic psalm well before the time of Jesus. Those who were living in the Old Testament times, living on the other side of the cross, read these words and they recognized that this psalm pointed forward to the Messiah who was coming. So as they're shouting out, save us, O Lord, we pray, Hosanna, they're actually taking those words of prophecy from Psalm 118 and applying them directly to Jesus. They believed that he was going to be their Messiah, their Savior, their King. But Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem to be the King that the people had expected him to be. Their expectation did not meet reality. He came not as a general or a political Savior. Instead, he came humbly. And this humility was demonstrated by the mode of transportation that he took. Jesus rode into town on a donkey, right? He could have chosen anything. He could have chosen a war horse, right? Bred for battle uh, and ready for anything, right? He could have uh, chosen a camel, uh, symbolism of, of kings who conquered vast swaths of territory, right? 
But yet he chose a donkey, a common, ordinary donkey, a beast of burden. Let me put this in a uh, 21st century context for us, right? Jesus could have chosen to roll into Jerusalem in a 2022 Ford Raptor, right? Built to go anywhere, do anything, uh, priced at around, I think it's $70,000 for the V8 model, right? (laughs) He could have ridden into town on this 2022 Shelby GT500, right? Built to go fast and get there loud, right? (laughs) But what did he choose? He chose for himself one of these, a mid-90s Honda Accord, right? (laughs) There's nothing flashy or fancy about it, right? It gets the job done. It goes and gets groceries. It comes back, right? (laughs) But there's nothing fancy about it. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey not only emphasized the humility of the king, but it also emphasized the reality of his kingdom. Yes, he was and is king. He is the king. But his kingdom, the kingdom that he came to establish, isn't a political or national kingdom. He didn't come to overthrow Rome with military might. He didn't come to set up a Jewish theocratic state, as was the hope of some. But as he told Pilate later, he said, my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is something greater than just nations and governments. The kingdom that he has already established and will fully establish at his second coming, his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. His reign is, is a reign of peace. But not just man-to-man peace. No, peace between man and God. And this peace then filters down into our everyday lives and our relationships. And when we experience firsthand peace with God, when we experience his love and his grace and his mercy in our lives, it allows us to show that same love and grace and mercy, extending forgiveness to others as well. Our king has come. Our king brings peace. Our king is a humble king. And yes, the king did come humbly. So humbly, in fact, that it caused some to miss him. It caused some to miss his coming. Verses 16, 17, 18, and 19 describe four different groups of people uh, and tell their various reactions to the coming of the king into Jerusalem. The first group that we see is the disciples. And we're told that, well, They did as the disciples so often do. They missed it. They flat out did not understand it. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And not to belittle the disciples, but this happens so often to the disciples, doesn't it? They hear Jesus teach a wonderful parable and it falls on deaf ears. Uh, They witness some great event like him walking on the water or his transfiguration into his eternal glory, uh, but they still don't get it, right? And we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples here on Palm Sunday. Maybe, maybe they didn't understand because they were simply caught up in the wave of emotion that, that, that carried Jesus into Jerusalem. Maybe they were too busy and too worried, right, trying to keep the crowd away from Jesus, that they didn't pay close attention to what was being shouted. Maybe they were just confused because earlier Jesus had actually foretold his own death. He said three times, three times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. And now they, with this show of support. They just couldn't fathom how those two things could go together. But whatever the reason, the disciples' mind were still foggy as to the events of that Saturday, or Sunday, I'm sorry, before Passover until after Jesus had been glorified, after he had been crucified, dead, buried, and then later risen to glory. With the help of the Holy Spirit, the disciples finally began to comprehend. But in the meantime, they did not understand 
there's another group of people present too who, who, who understood a little bit of what was going on. They were a crowd from the city of the village of Bethany. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, they, they bear witness, they testify, uh, they told the story as to what they had seen. Look at verse 17 again. Then the crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness, right? What did this group from Bethany tell the story of? What did they bear witness of? Bethany was the home of some friends of Jesus, right? Mary, Martha, and what was their brother's name? Lazarus, right? Yeah, he was a dead guy, right? He was dead. He came back to life. Uh, John chapter 11 uh, which takes place right before John chapter 12, if you hadn't figured that out. John chapter 11 tells us the story of Lazarus, uh, of Lazarus's death, how he had been dead and buried for four days. His body was already starting to rot and to decay by the time Jesus got there. And, and in Martha's own words, put into King James English, she says, but Lord, he stinketh, right? <laughs> but that didn't matter for Jesus, he was going to demonstrate his power over death. And he did so by calling Lazarus out of the tomb, by raising Lazarus from the dead. During our Wednesday night Lenten services, we've been talking about the, the seven signs, the seven miracles that, uh, that have been recorded in the Gospel of John. And John writes, these, these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, was the final sign that Jesus did. And as a result, many of those who were there, who were present, who witnessed that event, believed in Jesus. They believed him to be the Messiah, to be God's anointed. For them, there could be no other explanation. They had seen Lazarus dead, and they were not ignorant of what death looked like, what death smelled like. They knew that Lazarus was dead. They watched him get put in the tomb. They watched the stone get rolled in front of the tomb. They watched Jesus weep. And then they hear him pray to God. And then they listen to him call a dead man, a dead man who hears his voice, who obeys it, begin walking out of the tomb alive. They saw Lazarus alive and they recognized him for who he was. And now, maybe a week or two later, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this group of people from Bethany continue to tell the story uh, to anyone who would listen as to what Jesus had done. And then there's a third group of people, another crowd of people. They were from Jerusalem, and they were curious. Uh, verse 18 says, The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. They had heard what Jesus was, had done in Bethany. Rumor had spread. They didn't have Fox News or CNN, Twitter or Facebook for, for, to convey news. But the word had made it. They were curious. And they went out to welcome a hero. And there's a verse earlier in John that captures pretty well, I think, the, the general atmosphere surrounding Jesus among the people. John 7.31 said this, Many people believed in Jesus. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The people had seen and heard Jesus do miracles, how he turned water into wine, how he healed an official son, how he healed a man who had been crippled for 39 years, how he 
excuse me, how he fed 5,000 with just meager provisions, how he walked on water. And by now they had heard reports of, of Jesus healing the man born blind and him raising Lazarus from the dead in front of many witnesses. And they, and they ask rightly, what more should we expect the Messiah to do? They were curious. Then there's a fourth group mentioned as well, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were frustrated. Look at 19 again. So the Pharisees said to one another, See that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. These guys had been after Jesus for a while, but they were unable to get to him. Earlier they had, in essence, put out a bounty on his head. They wanted him dead, but unfortunately for them, they never found a time when Jesus was alone enough to quietly arrest arrest him. They were frustrated with the situation, with Jesus, with the whole thing. And so when you look at these four groups of people and their reaction to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, you notice something very interesting. Half of them, the disciples and the Pharisees, for their various reasons, completely missed the coming of the king and the significance of Jesus' arrival. And the other half, the group from Bethany and the group from Jerusalem, were looking for a political Messiah, not a spiritual one. In some way, shape, or form, they all missed the significance of the coming of the king. They did not catch what Jesus had come to accomplish. And so I'd encourage you, this holy week, don't miss Jesus. Don't miss what he has come to accomplish. It's easy for us to get distracted with with so many things going on. Work, school, life, family, drama, politics, pandemic, anxiety over what the future holds, right? But don't let these things weigh you down. Focus on Jesus. In your bulletin and on the screen here, um, there, there's some suggested readings for your, for your Holy Week devotions. If you don't have a regular pattern of devotions, this is a great week to start. Um, this, this isn't by any means exhaustive, but it does walk you through some of the significant events uh, of the last week of Jesus' life. So I'd encourage you, take some time each day this week, beginning today, ending next Sunday, reading some of these events, turning your eyes to Jesus, looking to him. Don't miss Jesus like the Pharisees and the disciples and the crowds did. On that first Sunday, Palm Sunday, though, there were some in, in the crowd who did not miss Jesus. There were some who did come to seek him. In verses 20 and 21, we see those who sought him. Listen to these words. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. John states this fact pretty, pretty plainly, but it's actually quite shocking and should really catch our attention. Among those who went up to worship at the Passover were some Greeks. And this is astounding because of the separation and the total divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And these Greeks were Gentiles, and the Jews viewed them as outsiders, cut off from the family of God. Any Jew who ate a meal or who fellowshiped with a Gentile was considered to be unclean. But here they were, these God-fearing Greeks, outsiders who came to worship at the Passover feast. They must have felt like vegans at a wild game feed, right? Nobody to talk to. Nobody would fellowship with them, right? But they knew one man who would talk with them, Jesus. And so they go and they seek him out. 
And their request to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, is simple. Sir, we want to see Jesus. They would love to have that chance to talk with Jesus, to ask him questions. They didn't demand to see signs and miracles done. They just wanted to talk with him. Sir, we want to see Jesus. How well are you personally prepared to answer that question? Now, I doubt anybody's going to come up to you this week saying those exact words, I want to see Jesus. But they will come to you with the same spirit as they ask questions about your church and about your faith. Why do you pray before meals? Why do you go to church anyway? What's Monday and why is it on a Thursday? Right? What's so important about Easter for Christians? And I hope and pray that you are ready to answer their questions when they come. We're told in 1 Peter 3 to always be prepared to make a defense to anybody who asks you for the hope that is in you. It doesn't mean that you have to have the the perfect textbook answers memorized and, and rattle them off at a moment's notice. You don't have to have an answer for every hard question either. You just need to be willing to point people to Jesus. That's what Philip did in this text. He took the Greeks to see Jesus. And as we study Philip's life, we see this interesting pattern developing of of him pointing other people to Jesus. Uh, For example, in John chapter 1, after Philip had been called by Jesus to follow him, Philip told his brother Nathanael that, hey, I found the Messiah, the Christ, and he's from Nazareth. And Nathanael responds in a a (laughs) mocking sort of way almost, can anything good come from Nazareth? Do you remember what Philip's response was? It was short and sweet and I love it. He said, come and see. I like that, come and see. Sometimes that's all it takes, an invitation to come and see. What's what's Easter all about anyway? Well, come and see, right? You don't need a fancy theological answer to every question. There's a time and a place for that, right? But a simple invitation to come and see might well change somebody's life. And so I'd encourage you this week to reach out to that friend or that neighbor, that coworker, that classmate whom the Lord is laying on your heart. Invite them to church next week, right? Your invitation doesn't have to be fancy. Just a simple come and see what it's all about. And then there's one final truth we need to focus on in John chapter 12 regarding Jesus coming as king, and it's this. He came to give his life. Look at these verses again, 22 and, or, I'm sorry, 23 and 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour has come. It is time. So often, Jesus has said, my time has not yet come. Like when his mother asked him to turn water to wine, he said, woman, my time has not yet come. But now, finally, the time had come. The ultimate purpose for what Jesus was about to, uh, the ultimate purpose for which he came, I'm sorry, was about to commence. The last act of the play was ready to begin. And Jesus uses a farming analogy to talk about the ultimate purpose for which he came. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it bears, but if it does, it bears much fruit. Right? Very soon, farmers will be out in the field, planting seeds, burying them in the ground. And initially, right, not much seems to be happening. Not much seems to be going on, right? But be patient. Give it a little time, a little water, a little fertilizer, some sunshine, weed killer, and what happens, right? 
Soon the seed sprouts and begin to grow. And, and given enough time, right, each plant will produce hundreds of seeds. And very soon the same thing would happen with Jesus. Uh, the triumphal entry and, and Palm Sunday take place obviously on a Sunday, right? Uh, but Thursday night, only five days later, Jesus would be betrayed by Judas and arrested by the high priests and he would be convicted of crimes that he did not commit by a kangaroo court. And by Friday morning, he would be beaten, whipped, sentenced to death. And about nine o'clock on Friday morning, good Friday morning, he would be crucified executed, dying the death of a criminal. He would die only hours later and be buried in a tomb, laid in the ground, and he would be there for three days. But that would not be the end. Like that seed that is placed in the ground, Jesus would, there, in Jesus there would be life. Jesus would rise from the grave victorious over sin and death, defeating the power of the devil. His death on the cross was your sacrifice for your sins. At Passover, Jews remembered the lamb that died in their place as their sacrifice. But Passover was always only a foreshadowing of the newer and greater Passover that was to come and the newer and greater lamb of God that would give his life as a sacrifice for his people. On Good Friday and and every day, really, we remember that the lamb died instead of us. Your king came on Palm Sunday. He came to give his life for you, dying in your place and on your behalf in order to bring you into a right relationship with the Father. He came to give you peace, not peace as the world gives or wants, but perfect peace, peace between you and God. The inner peace, too, that comes uh, that from the striving and turmoil that comes with freedom that he provides. And so today, I pray that you would know that kind of peace and the one who offers that kind of peace to you. If you don't, I'd encourage you to take a moment, repent of your sins, confess your sins, believe in his love for you and and his forgiveness for you. And then like the crowds from Bethany, don't keep it silent. Tell somebody. Sometimes our expectations don't meet our reality, right? A a job that sounded so good when you interviewed or a relationship that promises to be better than the last one, the car you bought that turned out to be a lemon, Uh, the crowd who welcomed Jesus as as king. Got a king all right, but just not the one they expected, right? But sometimes the opposite is true and reality far exceeds our expectations, doesn't it? An impromptu meal thrown together at the last minute becomes a new family favorite. Uh, That B movie uh, that you keep returning to because of the wit of the lines that are in there. A family vacation on a limited budget becomes chock full of memories and, and, and is a favorite. Your Savior King who lays down his life for you. Yes, sometimes reality exceeds our expectations. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I thank you for today and for this Palm Sunday. Thank you for sending your Son to be our Savior. Not the Savior that maybe many expected, uh, but the reality is so much greater than, than our expectations could have been. Thank you for sending him to die on the cross for us. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy displayed in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.